we're talking about elevating our conversations. And, you know, I love this video between this father and son. He happens to be a stand-up comic in, in Nashville. And his son's 19 months old. Because conversations, why are they so important? Why would we even talk about elevating them, whether they're a conversation with God or with somebody sitting next to us today? It's because conversations are about relationship. They're about connection. They're about being able to support each other, being able to share life together, being able to help each other and encourage each other along the journey, being able to need each other and help each other in those needs. And that's what I love about this, that the father and son, I mean, they don't really even understand what each other's saying, uh, though it appears that they do. I don't know. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but they still had this amazing connection. And that's what it really boils down to. And today we're going to talk about elevating our conversations. And Paul's taking us through this final chapter of Colossians, Colossians 4. And he invites the believers at Colossae and all of us to up our game in our conversation with God, in our conversations with others, in our conversations with outsiders. And we'll define that in just a few minutes. You know, I had a new swim coach my senior year of high school, and by this time, I'd swam for nine years. And when he came in and started our practices, he said, uh, Ann, um, I know the butterfly's your best stroke, and we're doing something new. Um, specificity and training's really important, so you're going to swim at least a third of every practice, maybe more, in butterfly. You're not going to do as many of the other strokes. Uh, and what that means tonight is you're going to do five, 200 yard repeats, butterfly, then you're going to do five 100-yard repeats, butterfly, then you're going to do five 50-yard repeats, butterfly, and I am looking at him. I'm not saying it out loud, but I'm thinking, you are crazy, because I couldn't believe it that he was going to make me swim that much butterfly in practice. It's crazy, but the truth is that that change, when implemented, when I trained more specifically, I elevated my ability to swim my race faster than ever before. Set new records. It worked. It worked. I elevated my race because of that. And I just felt like sharing that story today because I felt like God was saying as I was preparing and praying for the, uh, about this talk is that God wants to talk to us today about some things that we might react to the same way as I did when I heard that I was going to be swimming all that butterfly. It's like, I can't do that, or that's crazy, or I've tried that before, Anne, and it didn't work that out for me. But I want you to know the truth is that we can, and the key thing being in Christ, in Christ we have the power to do the things that we're going to talk about today. And our big idea today is this, that in Jesus we have the power to elevate our conversation with God and with others so that we can know him better and we can share his good news with other people in some dynamic ways. So I want to take a look there at Colossians 2, and we'll start with the first, uh, second through the fourth verses. Remember that the first verse of Colossians 4 is actually part of the slave-master conversation from the previous chapter, and which Jared talked about so well last week. So we pick it up in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. 
So the first thing that Paul tells them and us is this, that we are to elevate our conversations with God. Now, a lot of people don't call prayer that, but that's what prayer is. It's simply a conversation. It's a dialogue with God, not a monologue. So there's an exchange between us. And I felt that it was important to mention a little bit about prayer before we launch into what is, how we elevate it uh, so that we're working off the same definitions because maybe today you're still on your way to Christ. Maybe today you've grown up with some models of prayer that just seem like, wow, if that's what I have to do, I'm not doing it. Or that doesn't, I don't relate to that. I don't identify with that. So prayer is just a conversation with God, like a conversation with your best friend. It doesn't require a special language. It doesn't require a special volume. It doesn't require a special tone. None of those things are important. In our conversations with our friend and in our conversations with God, the best friend of all, we talk about our life. We talk about our problems, but we also talk about the exciting things that are happening, the celebrations. We talk about our dreams and our fears, our hopes, our disappointments, our disillusionments, our questions, our highs and our lows and everything in between. And we don't have to worry about getting our words right with God because it says in the Bible that God knows, first of all, he knows our hearts. He knows what's going on inside of us. And secondly, that he knows what we need even before we ask. So we don't have to worry about getting the wording just right. We can let go of those pressures and any models that we've grown up with that put that kind of pressure on us. And honestly, God is the safest person in the world to talk to, to tell him what you're really thinking. And when we stop and listen, that's when it really turns into an actual conversation Sometimes the thing we have to work on the most in elevating our conversation with God is listening, is stopping and just hearing from him because he shows us things about ourselves that we aren't really aware of. He tells us why we're so ticked off about that particular thing. He shows us what's bothering us about this. He shows us the source of our fear. These are the kinds of things that he'll reveal as we stop and be quiet. And then he points us to things that will help us, to people that will help us about whatever we've talked with him about. And I want you to know, Paul tells us to devote ourselves to prayer, and that's what he's talking about when he says that. What we've just said, that kind of conversation. He says, in another translation, diligently pray or give a lot of time and effort to prayer, that kind of conversation. In a recent Pew Research survey, 55% of Americans said that they pray every day. But I am pretty sure that when I mention the word prayer or conversation with God, that most of you might be like me or are like me. And the first thing that comes to mind when I think of elevating my conversation with God is pray more. How many of you be honest and say that's probably the one that, yeah. So is that what Paul's saying here? Is that the big gist of it? Well, I want to look at that with you. So first of all, he says, elevate our time and effort in conversation with God. And that command to be devoted to prayer is given 10 times in the New Testament. And it's often translated a different word, though. It's translated continue. All that means is persist in it without wavering. I like to do the and translation. Don't give up or let up in your conversations with God. Do it more and do it more consistently. Open up to him. And this is what Jesus modeled for us and for his disciples. 
In Luke 5.16, Dr. Luke gives us this wonderful summary as he's watched Jesus operate. He gives a summary of Jesus' conversations with God. And he says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus invested time and effort in prayer, and he increased it even more when the pressure was on, when the cross was approaching, when big decisions loomed, decisions like picking his team. He even pulled some all-nighters during those times. And sometimes we feel bad that our prayer life varies, that the time and effort looks different. But instead of beating ourselves up about that, we should think about Jesus, who made time, and he was like us in that he increased his efforts during difficult times and as the pressures mounted. It's okay to have an ebb and flow. He's talking about more than that here. Jesus also withdrew in order to pray. That means to disengage from something. It's very purposeful and very intentional. And it means that he pulled back from. What did Jesus pull back from? He pulled back from crowds that wanted him endlessly because he did such amazing things when they were gathered. He pulled back from his team who also wanted him and needed him. He pulled back from the demands of religious leaders who wanted him to perform certain rituals. Jesus disengaged from all of these desires in order to pray. So a part of elevating our conversations with God, elevating our time and effort is about how often, but a part of it really has to do with what are you willing to do? What am I willing to do to be with God, to talk with God? What would I do? Is it turn off my radio when I'm driving? And instead of listening to NPR, I'm going to have a conversation with God? Is it get up a little earlier? Is it find another time? What am I willing to do to make sure that it happens? That can be one of the ways. But the thing is, then he doesn't just leave us with, yes, increase your time and effort. He shows us how to make that even more wonderful, how to make that easier to do with his next statement, because he invites us to elevate our awareness and our gratitude in prayer. He says it this way, be watchful and thankful in it. Always be watchful and thankful. So I love those two words, because watchful is about a spiritual awareness versus being on autopilot when I go to God. Dear God, thank you for everyone. Thank you for my family. Bless them all today. Keep us all safe. Amen. Okay, now, that'd be a great starter prayer. That'd be a great way to start. But over time, that's like an autopilot. And we see that even at mealtime sometimes, that we move into autopilot. And it's great for training when we're training our kids. But then to, to move from that to a conversation about those very things, what's really on your mind when you said those words? What's really on your mind? That's what he wants to hear from us. That's what being watchful is about. It's all about being aware and attentive to God, being focused on what he's up to and what he's saying about the things that I'm talking with him about. It's about having our head in the game when we're praying. You know, I don't know about you, but I can distract myself. I don't even need you to distract me. I don't need social media or phones or technology to distract me. I can distract myself really good. In fact, maybe that's what's happening for you right now. My mind wanders. That's how I distract myself. And here's the deal. We can bring our wandering thoughts and ideas into our conversation with God. 
In fact, that's a great way to elevate the conversation because God, in those very things, will begin to speak to us and show us things, including why we're so preoccupied with them when we're supposed to be talking to him. And so that's an exciting thing. When I quit beating myself up for a wandering mind, and instead I just open up to God in it, and I say, God, you know what I'm doing here. You know that I've just started thinking about A, B, C, and D, because for me it's usually three or four things, not one. And then he starts taking me on. Okay, so one, one time in prayer, I was priding myself on my quick mind <laughs> in one of those moments when I was going all over the place. And God interjected, no, I had an undisciplined mind that I needed to harness. You see, he showed me why I was so preoccupied. I was kind of taking pride in that. My mind is so quick, so on it. Okay, maybe you guys don't pat yourself on the back ever. <laughs> But he's good to show us. And secondly, not just being watchful, so being focused on him, what he's up to, what he wants to do, and the thing that you're bringing to him. But secondly, gratitude. Gratitude, being thankful, raises our awareness of what God is doing and what he has done in my life. And it is a great antidote to complacency. If I'm struggling to want to talk to God, and don't tell me that none of you have never just like said, no, I'm not, I know I should pray right now, but I'm not, you know? just ignored the conversation with God. I have been there. And the thing is, I have found that gratitude is what gets me started, what brings me back to who he is and how wonderful he is and the things that I want to talk with him about. So Jared and I had this early mentor who gave us this, you know, 100 times before your feet hit the ground in the morning, uh, say thank you, God, you know, and just a thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you kind of thing. Well, that was okay, but that got a little bit monotonous. And um, then there was a, well, maybe I'll give thanks for 10 things, you know, but I mean, because I kept it to 10 because that's how many fingers I have. And um, I need that help in the morning. But what I've really found helpful is just to decide when I wake up, I think, I think, what's the first thing that came to mind that I can give thanks for? This morning, I was laying my hand. I had my hand on my husband's shoulder when I woke up. I said, thank you, Lord, for this man. And then just began to thank him for that. And then from that flowed other things. The fan that was cooling us. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it was just a whole series of very real things. But in that moment my conversation with God began to elevate and I was drawn to him with renewed affection because of what he's done in my life. Gratitude. So time, effort, focus or watchfulness and then this gratitude. Where do you feel like God speaking to you, you could elevate your conversation with him? Which of those areas would you like his help with? Because we never do this on our own. And then finally, he gives them one more talk about elevating their conversation Elevate your conversations with God by including the leaders in your life in that conversation. This is in Colossians 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, pray for us too. Pray that God will give us an opportunity to preach our message. Then we can preach the mystery of Christ. Because I preached it, I'm being held by chains. Pray that I will preach it clearly as I should. Paul's prayer request for himself and the other leaders his team, was all about the mission. In this particular case, he doesn't ask for personal prayer, though he does in some others. I mean, personal as in something else that's going on in his life. He prays for an opportunity to share the message and clarity of communication when he does. But what I want you to notice is that Paul was not afraid to ask for prayer. 
for himself and the people with him, the other leaders on his team. I had the pronouns underlined in that verse that it's us and we and are to emphasize that. So Christians in China are being persecuted, and I'm sure you've read about this, and there's a huge millions of people in China are part of the underground church. And there are leaders of these underground churches, and many of these people are being thrown in jail because having, they have the scriptures. And the scriptures are confiscated. And when they are, they take little slips of paper and they write out verses, as many as they can, and they slip these to one another. They memorize them and they pass them on so that they can have God's word. Well, Wayne Cadero, a friend and colleague, went there recently and he went to speak to the leaders of this underground church, and he noticed one woman amongst the many leaders that were there, both men and women, and he noticed that she gave her Bible to, to a group of leaders that didn't have one, because he had just asked them to all turn to Second Peter. And he said it became quite apparent through his talk that she had the entire book memorized. She was a woman who had been jailed multiple times, and had been handing those pieces of paper back and forth. Now, the leaders explained to Wayne, he said, we have hidden God's word in our heart because they can't take that away from us. Now, at the end of his three days of talking, he turned to me and said, how could I pray for you? To all this group of leaders meeting in a 700-square-foot apartment, I might add, crammed in there. And this is what they said, pray that we will be just like you. And Wayne said he would not do that. He said, I will not pray that you become like us. I will pray that we become like you. Why do I share that story? Kind of an odd one to share about praying for leaders. It's because this. Sometimes you should pray for things that the leader hasn't asked for. Sometimes God wants to have you pray for something that you've noticed. God wants you to be that point person and begin praying for that. So you can pray for more than what we've asked for. Now, you might have noticed um, that we have this thanks for praying uh, card. And I realized when this happened that we've asked many groups of leaders to pray for us. We've asked individuals to pray for us. But we've never asked the church to pray for us, to pray for leaders, the leaders here. And so I had this little card made for you down below are the names of everybody. And just, I've just put four things there. But I've just invited you to pray what you see to pray as well. But like Paul, we're about the mission. So these things have to do with the mission and about loving God and loving people, right? The big deals. So I want to invite you. These are meant to be put someplace where you're going to see them regularly. And please pray for us. I want to be more like Paul in that and be open to asking you to. We, we uh, have a focus on servant leadership and don't always think, well, yeah, we should ask for ourselves as well. So thank you for praying for us. So Paul asked us to elevate our conversations with God, and a part of that is to include leaders in our prayer. And now he's going to talk to us about elevating some other conversations, our conversations with outsiders. How many of you like that word, outsiders? (laughs) Yep, I didn't think so. I don't like it either. But there it is in the Bible, and I want to tell you that it's translated outsiders in some translations, and even in the NIV, it's translated outsiders sometimes and unbelievers sometimes. Same word, though, outsiders or unbelievers. What it's really talking about is people who don't know Jesus yet, who are still on their way to faith. So you know that 
Those aren't my favorite terms. My favorite term is pre-Christians. I call those Christians waiting to happen. Because I believe that if somebody really gets to know Jesus, if they really know the real Jesus and how much he loves them, how much he cares about them, what he's done for them, and not all these religious trappings that they may have been tripped up by, or all the disillusioning things they've learned about the disappointments that we bring in their lives, but rather who Jesus really is, that they'll love him and they'll give their lives to him. So I like that term better, pre-Christians. But Paul uses this term several other places in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, And do everything you can to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you to. Then unbelievers, there's the word, then unbelievers will have respect for your everyday life, and you won't have to depend on anyone. And again, in 1 Timothy 3, 7, he's talking about elders' qualifications. He said he must also have a good reputation with outsiders. Same word. So that he'll not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What do we really learn from this? What we really understand from this is God cares about how we live with everyone in his world, not just the Christians, not just the ones who are like us, because we are their introduction to the good news of Jesus, and he wants us to be the good news for them. So Paul gives us three tips to elevate our conversation with outsiders, with pre-Christians in our life. And I want to give it one big umbrella word, because when I look through these three tips, the thing I see over and over is just it's one word, intentional, intentional, intentional. Be more intentional about our conversations with pre-Christians. Be more alert. So here's the first thing he says, be wise in the way we act. Be thoughtful about how we act with outsiders because our actions will speak louder than our words. Our actions are the entree. They are the appetizer, rather, that makes room for the entree of actually sharing Jesus. Second tip, seize the moment. Make the most of every opportunity is how Paul puts it. This was actually a market place term. So the people at Colossae would have heard it this way. Oh, it's to buy out and purchase something completely. It's a, you're wiping the store out, right? You see an item, it's a great deal. You buy everything that they have. That's how they would have understood it. They would have understood it. Buy out every opportunity you get to share your faith. Don't waste a single opportunity. That word for opportunity is kairos, and it really refers to not duration of time, but specific moments in time, God moments, these significant moments. Now, here's the deal. We call those, if you've been a Christian for a while, we have Christianese. Okay, in Christianese, they call those divine appointments. I mean, I think that sounds like a celestial meeting of some kind, but I want to tell you my definition for divine appointments. It's a meetup with someone that was set up by God. It's a meetup with someone that was set up by God. So Jared and I have this friend that for two years, we come in four times a week and we see her at our workout place. And she's a teacher. And we have developed this conversation and we talk together. And back in March, it was the Monday after uh, there'd been the men's retreat. And she asked us what we'd been doing. And I told her, I said, well, Jared was at a men's retreat and I was speaking. And um, so she said, because we haven't ever tried to hide our faith from her. Here's the deal. In all of our conversations over two years, she's never indicated or tried to identify with anything we've said about faith. And sometimes people do that, you know, when they're open. No, nothing. But this time, she said, where was that uh, retreat that he spoke at? And I said, well, it was at Washington Family Ranch. 
a Young Life camp. She said, Young Life? I went, 21 years ago, I went to camp at Malibu for one week. 21 years ago. She's a young mom. So this had to be early in her life. That's all she said. End of conversation. But it was a point of identification that she had somewhere heard the gospel, that she had been a part of something like that. And we, she wanted to know, is the camp still there? And we said, yeah, Malibu is still going strong, still reaches lots of students every year for Jesus. That was the end of that conversation. Then the end of that workout happened. Now, we never hug each other at the end of workout, okay? Not Jared and I and nobody else as well. <laughs> Because we are sweaty and it isn't good. But at the end of that workout, she came up to me, wrapped her arms around me, and whispered in my ear, please pray for me. I need you to pray for me. Seize the moment. Seize the moment. That's what Paul was talking about. Be wise in how we act. Seize the moment. His third tip is let your conversation leave outsiders wanting more. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you have stories about this one. Paul uses two phrases, full of grace. Let your conversation always be full of grace. That is winsome and kind and attractive and pleasant. Yes, Christians should be the most pleasant people on planet earth to outsiders. Why is it that we're often not known that way? That's a mistake. Secondly, our conversation should be seasoned with salt. And this is speaking about speaking life-giving words that are wholesome, they're flavorful, they're lively, they pique curiosity in the person who hears them. And Jared and I, we have this little phrase, we like to be on the lookout for where we're supposed to sprinkle a little salt, not unscrew the salt shaker lid and dump the whole thing on them, but just sprinkle a little salt. We just usually pray before we go into that kind of a time and ask the Lord to show us how to do that in that time. It may be as simple as saying, God cares about what you're going through right now. And I do too. It might be as simple as offering to pray. May I pray for you? It might be as simple as saying, I'm going to be praying for you. Or how can I support you in this time? But just beginning so I was at New Seasons, a store, and one of my neighbors that I've been praying for and loving in Jesus' name for a while now, she was in the store. We ran into each other. It was a divine appointment. It was a meetup set up by God. I knew that two weeks before, her mom had died. And when they had been at a Thanksgiving gathering, family from all over the world came for that particular one. And while there, their mom took ill and passed away. And this was my first chance to see her. Well, I'm in a grocery store, and she's a pretty tight, not necessarily um, maybe cool culture versus warm culture, if you understand that at all. Um, so I wasn't sure, but I felt like God was saying, give her a hug and tell her that you're sorry, that her mom has passed away and that you've been praying for her. So right there in New Seasons, I just put my arms around her, and she buried her head in my shoulder this person who never let me get that close. And when she looked up, there were tears running from her eyes. And I said, I'm so sorry about the loss of your mom. I've been praying for you. She said a few more words, but that was it. That was the whole extent of the conversation. The thing is, a few weeks later, I was walking by their patio, and her and her husband were enjoying a glass of wine together. And I felt like the Lord said, 
stop and say hi, because, you know, it's just a little stoop. So I said hi, and they said, come down and sit with us for a little bit. So I did, and I got their stories. The next step. That's what we're talking about. You see, Jesus was not weird in his interactions with people who didn't yet believe him at all. He cared for them. He offered help. He didn't force himself on them. And these conversations always left them curious, wanting more, and interested in what had been brought up. I want to just highlight what he didn't say He didn't say, avoid people who don't know Jesus. Criticize people who don't know Jesus. Be afraid of people who don't know Jesus. Judge people who don't yet know Jesus. None of those. Always be full of grace. So I want to be more thoughtful, more intentional, more aware of what God is up to and leave outsiders wanting more in our conversations. Finally, He tells us the third conversation set that he wants to elevate, and that's our conversations about others, including yourself. Paul finishes this letter with a string of greetings and personal information from other stories and from his own story, and he models for all of us how to talk about others with each other, including ourselves. So we're going to feel like we're reading somebody's mail, because we are, and this is actually most of chapter four. It's not unusual for Paul to do this in his letters. He always devotes kind of a crazy amount of time to this. So I'm going to pick it up in verse seven. I'm just going to read it straight. I'm going old school. Hard copy right here, you guys. you got to have all these models out there. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who's one of you. They'll tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, Um, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Just want to point out it's a her, not a him. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Oh, man. So I see in here five qualities that Paul modeled about elevating our conversations about others, including ourselves. And these are true whether we're, we're talking about a conversation on social media, on email, on text, and snail mail, any, and face-to-face conversation. All the places 
where we have opportunities, and we have so many more opportunities, don't we, to converse. So these are quick, folks. First of all, encouraging. Paul was encouraging. He tells them about Tychicus, who's encouraging them and, making, and going to make their hearts strong, and he makes sure that they know that their founding pastor is praying for them. And he's working hard at that. There's a lot of emotion and intensity in the words that he uses. And he lets them know about the people who are there with him and how they're doing. And he makes sure that they know that he's not going to leave them in the dark about what's going on. Now, what I love about that is because being kept in the communication loop is not only encouraging, but it tells people you matter when you keep them in the communication loop. And it helps them pray for their leaders. Secondly, he was friendly. And Paul took time to be friendly by greeting people, even those that he had never met face to face. Here's what I want you to catch about friendliness in our conversations. Hurry can erase friendliness from our conversations. When we get in a hurry, we become so focused on the task that we eliminate taking time to acknowledge all the people that are part of the conversation. And so I just want to encourage you, let Paul um, show you how to be friendly to everyone who's part of your conversation. Thirdly, it's repeatable. His communication was shared about others in such a way that he could say, sure, send this letter to Laodicea, pass it around, read it wherever. And I think that's a pretty good test for us as we're going to talk about others. Would this be repeatable in our context? Fourthly, helpful. Paul uses this conversation with the church at Colossae to remind his friend Archippus to finish what he started. And I find that reminders are helpful. Do you ever need them? And I see that this way. There's no reaction here. Archippus didn't, you know, uh, that we know of, throw a fit. This is not uncommon for Paul to write a reminder to, pe- to someone in his list. But reminding each other of what really matters is so helpful. And that's also a hallmark of a great conversation about others. Is it helpful? Finally, is, is it real? real conversation. Paul modeled this one about how to talk not only about others, but about ourselves. When we talk about ourselves, are we real? Paul was. And he ends the whole letter with this. I'm writing to you in chains. Remember my chains. I'm in prison, remember? That's not fun. Paul frequently does this when he writes to the churches. Of the circ- he tells them about the circumstances that he's in or had just experienced. He liked people to know what was happening in his life, and that's true here. He told them that he was sending a messenger just to tell them that. And he mentions three men here in this passage, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. He says, these are the Jews amongst my team, these three men. And that word his, that he says, they bring comfort to him, that is our word for paragoric, pain relievers. What is he saying? He's saying, these men are my pain relievers because of the response, the rejection of Jesus by my people, the Jewish people. So these three men gave him hope. He was reminding them of some of the personal pain that he lives with. Paul didn't try to portray his life as a grand string of accomplishments or as a series of dreams come true or a life without sacrifice. He did not withhold the difficult stuff in order to make it more glamorous to others. Instead, he communicates the hardships and weaknesses that he's lived with throughout. We need to be those people who can share the hard moments, who can share the disappointments and the failures in a community that will be with us through them. That kind of vulnerability 
elevates our conversations because we're drawn to each other, to pray for one another, to remind one another of what's really true when we're going through it, to remind each other to rely on Jesus and of God's amazing love and faithfulness in the past that will be true again for us in this part of our story. So a pastor friend, a longtime pastor friend, sent me a text a while back and wrote, people are so full of crap when they say they are your friend and you are pastoring a church. You think that was a bad day? (laughs) That was a rough day, but this person told me what he was really feeling. That's where God really meets us. That's where we can really support each other when we're honest, when we're real about it. Now, two weeks later, I got a text from the same person. I just led someone to Jesus that I've been praying for and loving for over a year. Worth it. See, it's about both. Being real isn't just about the, and vulnerable, isn't just about the bad stuff. It's about the good stuff too, because quite honestly, sometimes people have a hard time celebrating the good stuff with us, right? It's really about being real about whatever is going on. That's what Paul models so well for us. So my question for us is, do each of us have a group of believers, have a group of people that we can be real with? This fall, we're going to be starting a bunch of groups, parenting groups, rooted groups, women growing together groups, men's group, Bible studies, other kinds of groups. But the temptation is after we sign up for that group and we show up the first day that we decide, hmm, I want to look good. So I better like just talk about this. And each week there is that temptation. Should I share this or not? And I want to invite you to the same kind of vulnerability that the Apostle Paul lived with, who could say, I prayed three times and it didn't happen for me. And God said, I'm going to have to be enough for you in that. Could you be that honest? Could we be that honest? Because that's the kind of community we want to be for each other. That's when we're really the body of Christ, sharing together with each other. So I want to just invite you, what's the Holy Spirit saying to you? And we're going to pray together. What's he highlighting for you? Is it your conversation with God? Is it your conversation with outsiders? Is it your conversation with others and yourself or about others and yourself? Let's pray together. Jesus, I just want to say thank you for your amazing love and for your word, Lord, today and for the example of the Apostle Paul in talking to us about these things. So, Lord, we set ourselves this week to take time to listen to you. Lord, would you help us to elevate our conversations with you, our conversations with those who are pre-Christians, and our conversation about others? Lord, would you speak to each person today and this week, even as they go home, Lord, the people in their household, the people they work with, the people that we live next to, Lord, would you help us this week to be so intentional with your help, with your power, with our words? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.